Well, thank you, Abby. Beautifully read as well. Uh, and good morning, church. My name is Matt, one of the pastors here. And, uh, you know, I'm really, actually really looking forward to getting stuck into this book with you uh, over the course of this term. Uh, you know, Job, for me, has been a, a bit of a book of mystery, but uh, having spent some time in it over the last few weeks, uh, I tell you what, I am really excited by what God has to teach us through this book. Now, uh, if you grab one of these booklets, uh, there are spaces to take notes from the talks throughout this series towards the back, so you can uh, uh, have a look there. We actually have a whole basket full of pens down there at the back there as well. So uh, if you want to feel like, hey, actually, I do kind of like taking notes, and I do actually really recommend that just in terms of uh, engaging your mind throughout this process. Go and grab a pen if you haven't got one already, or stick your hand up, and we'll run, run, uh, run one around to you. Uh, tell you what, Job, uh, Job is a book that asks some massive universal questions, you know, questions about just the meaning of life and the universe, of suffering and of the nature of the world that we live in. Uh, and it's one of, and I think it actually deep down it asks one of those really fundamental questions, and it's the question really that we engaged with earlier about life. That life, to many of us, just doesn't seem fair. In fact, I would say that that little phrase, it's not fair, may actually be the most common phrase in my household, right? I've got a house with a couple of little kids and, uh, uh, you know, it gets bandied around a, a lot. You know, why does Aiden get to stay up till 8.30 and I have to go to bed now? Or the other one uh, that I hear often, well, mum, dad, why can't we watch more TV? It's not fair. Or perhaps my favourite one of the whole lot, Mum, Dad, why aren't kids allowed to drink coffee? I mean, can you imagine a three-year-old doped up on coffee? I don't know about you, that would be a little bit crazy to me. All right, so it's not fair. Well, uh, that's a question I think that even as we're thinking about this, even as maybe you were thinking engaging on this yourself in conversation, that you were thinking uh, this through about, oh, there's so many things about life that just aren't fair. It's not just something for uh, kids, but something that as adults we understand as well. You know, it's like we kind of get this sense in which, you know, we've all got the little inner child. We've all got some inner sense in which there's meant to be some kind of universal law that life is supposed to be fair, that life's supposed to be equal, that uh, one person is not supposed to get more than another person's share. And I think it's a funny thing, because when actually when I was thinking about it, I was like, we never taught our kids that. Like, we never sat them down and, and said, hey, this is the way that life's supposed to be. They just worked it out for themselves. They just worked it out for, for themselves, as, even as they just compare themselves to each other, to their friends, as they compared our family to other families. And it's a funny thing, right, because they never, they never complain about this whenever actually they're the ones in a position of privilege, because that's kind of how it works, isn't it? That's kind of how that statement works, is that it's only fair so long as we're the ones who have less than someone else. But see, you and I feel that too, don't we? Why is it that some people get all the attention and others don't? Why is it that some people suffer greatly and others don't? 
Why is it that some people seem to have life easy, whereas for others, life is just truly a great struggle? Why is it that some people have health struggles and others don't? Why is it that some people have all the goodies in life and others don't? Why is it that I aren't aren't as successful or charismatic or as good-looking as another? And we get angry about it. Or sometimes we try to trick ourselves and go, well, you know, let's just think positive thoughts, positive thinking. That's what we need to do. Or we try to console ourselves by saying, well, well, maybe, you know, it's not as bad for me as it is the starving children in Africa. But of course, that doesn't work either, because as soon as you say that, well, you start realising, well, life's even less fair for others. Well, friends, that does bring us to the book of Job. You see, Job wrestles with all of those questions, questions of fairness, of justice, of God and and of God's goodness. In fact, I think that's why Job is really one of the most fascinating books in in all of the Bible, right? See, it wrestles with deep philosophical questions, but it does so in this way of of poetry and drama and dialogue. In fact, you know, as I was reading it out to us, I was thinking, you know, this is almost the closest thing that you get to a play in the Bible. For those of you know who love drama and play and musicals, uh, this is definitely one for you. Now, Job is a very old book. It's part of the Old Testament. Uh, and what it seems to be like is it's always, it always plays out as this conversation between Job and three friends for most of it. Now, it does seem like there's a real conversation going on as well, not just within the book, but between Job and the other wisdom books in the Bible. And you can actually look up the uh, Bible Project video on this. Um, it's up on our Facebook page as well uh, to kind of find out exactly how those things all link together. But also, I will just mention this, that actually in your booklet, just on the first couple of pages there, there's a bit of an introduction with some background on Job. So if you want to kind of get your head around just the bigger picture of Job, there's some plenty of information there in the booklet for you to wrestle through. All right, but let's just set the scene now. Here we are, Job chapter 1, in the land of Uz. Now, Uz is in the, it's not actually in Israel where most of the Old Testament is set. It's set somewhere to the east of Israel. In fact, Job and Job's friends don't seem to be Israelites at all. See, in these wisdom literature books in the Bible, often there's statements that are not just applicable to God and God's people there in Israel, but actually to everyone. These are universal questions, universal questions about suffering and justice and fairness and the like timeless questions about the world. But just come and read with me again from chapter 1, verse 1. So if you've got your Bibles, keep that open there, chapter 1, verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. See, what kind of portrait do we get of Job as a man, an upright and blameless man, man who feared God? Now, that's not to say that he's perfect in every particular way, but what, what the author is saying is that he was a man of intense integrity, a man who actually understood and had a relationship with God and he, and he feared God, that is, he revered God and he, and he kept God in, its, in, in God's rightful place. He is fabulously rich, but he's not just kind of like some kind of billionaire 
playboy. He's actually one who loves his family and he's got people who love him, right? He's a, he's a family man, 10 kids, a life all around of blessing, feasts and birthdays for his children. He's blessed in everything he does. He's one of those guys and he just seems like everything he touches turns to gold. See, I was trying to think of who would you compare Job to today, right? Who would you compare him today? I mean, is it kind of the, the Elon Musks of the world? I mean, a multi-billionaire, uh, someone who's, you know, invented some of the biggest and, and most influential companies in the world, uh, SpaceX and Tesla and so on. But actually, well, Elon's kind of got a bit of a messed up family life, uh, to be honest. I mean, he's got, got multiple, had multiple wives and divorces, got kids all over the place. No, I was thinking maybe he's more of a Chris Hemsworth, right? I reckon Australia, I reckon Chris Hemsworth, he's like the guy that everyone wants to be, rich, famous, uh, you know, he gets to play uh, 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 some kind of space god of some sort with a mighty hammer, and, uh, but he's also, you know, he's built like a bodybuilder, he's got a lovely family, he lives in a giant mansion there in Byron Bay, it seems to be like that is the quintessential Australian life. If, if anyone's got it right, Chris Hemsworth does. People who seem to have it all. In fact, he might be the kind of person you look at and go... <laughs> Life's not fair. What has what what Chris, Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth got on me? But Job's actually got something else on all of these guys. In fact, he's also spiritually and religiously devoted. See verse 4. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of fa- uh, feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So you see this little picture of perfection, life perfection, of peaceful and and, and loving family and of uh, this religious devotion to God. But Job's little paradise is about to be shaken, right? We set the scene of this life that we see of Job, but then we get transported into the courts of heaven, to the courts of heaven. Verse 6, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. So Satan, there in the courtrooms of heaven, comes to God with a proposition. He actually says, well, you know, God, you know that Job there, he only obeys you because you've given him such a good life, right? He only loves you for what you've given him, not for you for you. Verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now stretch out your hand and strike everything he has and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, everything he has is in your power But on the man himself, do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. 
Now, I'm not sure that the author of Job is actually suggesting that this is actually how all the decisions in heaven are made, and that Satan comes and proposes things and God allows it or not. But I think there is something here, a clue to kind of say that sometimes there are things, there are forces, there are things going on in the universe, in the cosmos out there that we're not aware of, that might influence the things that happen here on earth. See, I don't know if you've ever had that feeling sometimes that you just feel like the universe is against you, right? When the challenges and struggles come along and and you just feel like there are forces working against you. Well, in a sense, Job is actually revealing that, well, there are lots of other forces at work. The world isn't just a world of atoms and material and physical forces, nor is there some universal law that says that everything's got to be shared out evenly amongst everyone. He's saying there are angels, there are beings, there are things, there are people, there are things, forces, Satan against you. But the other thing we've got to notice is actually, it makes another point, that even though there might be things that are happening out there and forces against you in the world, none of it comes outside of God's control. Did you notice that? See, who ultimately gives permission for Satan to go and do it? It's like God actually has his fingers in everything. And that even over the hard things and the suffering that might happen to you, that there may be some greater purpose being uh, worked out by God in all of that. But let's stop and consider Satan's question for a moment, because actually I think it's quite a penetrating little question. Does Job fear God because God's blessed him and given him good things? Or does Job actually love God? If you took away all of the good things in Job's life, wouldn't he not just turn around and curse you, God? And I think we should ask that question for ourselves, actually. Do you love God for God, or do you love God for what he gives you? And so Satan sets up this test, this test that God allows that he's going to take everything from Job's hands and to see whether Job is going to turn around and curse God. Now, this might shock you that actually God allows this test to happen, but as we see, there are lessons for us to be learnt through this. And so what happens? Verse 13. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came to him and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, the Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one left who has escaped to tell you. And finally, while he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It had collapsed on them, and they are dead, and I am the only one who's escaped to tell you. Now, I'll be honest, you know, you get to the end of that little passage, that series of tragedies, and uh, you almost have to have a bit of a chuckle to yourself, right? Like, just the way it all works out, the one person escapes, and they, they are the person who manages to come back and tell Job what happens. In a sort of a dark comedy kind of way, tragedy befalls Job and his household, right? He loses everything. He loses, uh, his, he loses all of his riches at the hands of foreign, foreign raiders and natural disasters. He loses everything. 
his flocks, his servants, and most devastatingly, his children, all of them. Now, early in the week, my wife asked me, well, do you think Job's a real person or not? To be honest, I'm not actually 100% sure, but what you're seeing here very clearly is, is a very stylized account. It's a very dramatized account of someone's life, isn't it? So it could be maybe it's a dramatic retelling of someone's life, or maybe it's more like a wisdom thought experiment. Suppose there was a man who was this righteous. Either way, either way, we need to, to go on the journey with Job and to recognize here he goes from being healthy, wealthy, and wise materially, relationally, family, and he goes to poverty, to loneliness in moments. All his wealth is gone, his flocks, his servants, his family. In fact, what happens, and there's a second round of suffering in chapter 2, if you go to read on, and Satan then afflicts his body and takes away his health. You know, I looked around, and I I could not find a single story out there in the news of someone who had suffered on the same kind of level. This is an unmatched level of loss, right? There were people who lost everything in the global financial crisis of 2007 and in various recessions since. And there's people who've gone through extraordinary relational loss. There are people who have suffered great physical pain, but it's very rare for someone to lose all three at the same time. So I want you to try and just imagine what that's like for a moment. Everything that you are, everything that you had is taken away for you in but a moment. Put yourself in Job's shoes. Where does your mind go? Where does your heart go? Remember, Job doesn't know why this has happened. He's not privy to the conversations and things that have gone on in the heavenly courts. You see, I don't know about you, but I could see myself going in a few different directions. Just my self-pity, self-loathing of my life and what's become of me, of my loss of what life used to be. Angry that this could have happened. In fact, I've heard it said, and I think it's true, that suffering can either make you bitter or it can make you badder or it could build you up. See, I think suffering is a bit like a pinprick that shows what comes out of you, what's on the inside of you. So you could bring out a deep sense of cynicism or depression or anger, bitterness. It could make you angry for vengeance, perhaps. But I think clearly one of our reactions would be to say, well, this seems so unfair. And you would be right in a sense, wouldn't you? Because we just heard that Job is blameless. God says so himself. See, what would Job be asking? Why? Why me? This is the question that Job and his friends will wrestle with in the rest of the book. You see, I think there's something inherently human about kind of feeling like our lives should be better. If life was fair, well, surely my life would look a little bit better than it does now. See, I think actually I saw a little, uh, little cartoon kind of that captures some of this, uh, kind of goes a bit like this, right? If life was fair, I'd have everything because I'd work so hard. Or if life was so fair, I'd have everything because I'm such a good person. Right, you kind of see how we place ourselves in the position of one that says, well, 
things can't be fair because I don't have as much as the other person and, 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 well, I'm clearly deserving of that as well. Do you see how when we ask that question, we actually place ourselves in a position of moral authority, like we see that life's supposed to be fair and we're deserving of that fairness. See, we flood ourselves with all these questions about suffering and, and death and about why, about why we don't get as much as what the next person has. And we can't accept that state of our lives. We keep comparing ourselves with others. And we live with this discontent. But you know, this week, this week I actually learned there's a name to this. It's called the fallacy of fairness, right? It's a fallacy of fairness. Here it is. It's this assumption that actually everything's supposed to be fair and that if it was fair, that my life would actually be better, not worse. Well, church, you know what? Scripture's got a word to say about this. And as Job and as Scripture peels back the curtains, it actually reveals something much deeper and something that may be a bit harder for us to accept. And that is that maybe, maybe we're not actually deserving that maybe actually if life was fair, our life would be worse off, not better. You see, the testimony of Scripture is that actually God sees all and knows everything about us and our lives. It actually says that there's a thing called sin that describes the state of our heart and of our rebellion against God and of the, the, the aspects of our heart that actually turn us against others and, and those around us, that make us do wrong. See, it's there in, uh, in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3 says this, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. You see, the person who sees God and says, well, life's not fair, actually puts himself in a position of moral goodness to be deserving of that. And yet scripture constantly all the way through testifies about the dark side of each of us, that actually none of us are deserving, that none of us are truly righteous and good and are therefore deserving of all of God's blessing. You see, the person who understands God understands that actually life is about fairness Every single day and everything that you have in your life is a gift from God, is a gift of his grace. You see, you know, even in the secular world, they wrestle with the exact same things. You know, this uh, fallacy of fairness uh, uh, says this. Instead of thinking, hey, it's unfair, my friend's making a lot more money than I am doing the same job, try this. I might not make as much as they are, but I'm grateful for the job that I do have. Now, I love the sentiment, I love the logic of that, but actually in the secular world, there's no basis for that. There's no sense in which there is a God who graciously grants and gives us all good things. But that's, that's what Job actually understands and what Job points us to, is that God has given us everything that we have and we, he gives it to us out of his love and grace for us. See, so look at how Job responds. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked, I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. So I just want you to actually take a moment right now just to dwell on Job's response. Everything has been taken away from him. His previously pristine life was taken away. And this is how he responds. This is how he responds. See, Job's actually understood God rightly in this instance. All he ever had, all the good things of his life, the flocks, the servants, the family, was a gift. He came into the world with nothing and God gave him everything. And yes, it is in God's prerogative to take it all away as well. That if God chooses to, he can give and he can take away. And if you're wondering, oh man, this seems extraordinary. How could Job possibly respond like this? Where's his sadness and, and, and where's his emotional response? Well, come back next week because we're going to have a look at Job's lament in chapter 3. In fact, Job himself doesn't able to, isn't able to kind of maintain this level of faith throughout the whole book of Job. And we'll, we'll go on that journey with him. But for now, let's just be amazed at Job's statements because very clearly he's made an incredible statement of faith right in this moment. You see, there's another way to view life, another way to view life. Instead of kind of viewing life through uh, fairness and discontent, there's a way of viewing life through trust and gratitude, trust in the God who is in charge of all things and is pulling strings and understands the world in ways in which we couldn't possibly fathom and who might be doing something in your life right now to grow you and to build you. And to grow you through the sufferings and the struggles that you have going on right now. That we can have faith that actually in that process, God is trying to produce in us something that's greater than our comfort. That he's building and growing our character through the struggles and the pain. And yes, the unfairness of the things that might have happened in your life. And so we can live more like Job does here in chapter 1 out of the gratitude of knowing the God who gives and takes away. You see, there's an old song. It's, it's actually, I didn't realize, it's actually about 20 years old now. Uh, it's a great song that actually comes more or less out of this passage in Job. It goes like this. Blessed be your name when the sun's shining down on me. When the world's all as it should be, blessed be your name. Blessed be your name on the road marked with suffering. Though there's pain in the offering, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, church, that is a phenomenal way to go through life. That we could praise God in the good and and the bad. You know, friends, Job gives us an extreme example, really, of faith here, doesn't he? Faith in the midst of suffering, trust in God in the midst of having everything taken away. Now, as we keep going on with Job through his journey, he has a lot more ups and downs and turns along the way. But at least at this moment, we can say there is a godly response in a man who understands God and understands that actually we don't understand everything and that God might be doing something greater in us. But you know what? 
Job really points us towards someone greater, an ultimate Job. You see, there is one who never stepped out of line in the face of intense suffering. In fact, under the most unjust suffering, never pronounces a word of anger or cursing. His name is Jesus. Yes, Jesus Christ gives us the ultimate example of faithfulness in the midst of undeserved suffering. And he calls us to follow in his footsteps. Peter says this, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. See, church, Joe points us forward to a day in which a totally righteous man would be insulted, tortured, and put to death. And yet he never curses God. He never turns his back on God. He never curses those around him who unjustly took him to the cross to be crucified. He never wavered, and he took the cup of wrath that was due for you and me. Friends, this is the one that we are called to follow, to follow in his footsteps. You know, I said earlier, I couldn't find someone who quite had that experience that Job had, but I did find someone who was actually quite similar in their experience. And the name's Danny and Layla Abdullah, okay? A couple of years ago, uh, they were, you know, they're, they're a lovely family. They were taking their kids down to the corner shop to get some ice cream. But there was a truck driver who was drunk, under the influence of drugs, and traveling at 135 kilometers down a suburban road who swerved onto the footpath and instantly killed three of their kids and their niece who was with them. Now, I mean, that is getting close to Job's level of loss. But what was absolutely stunning about the whole story is that a few days later, they came out on media in front of everyone, in front of Australia and said, we forgive the man who did this. Now, as soon as I heard that, I thought, look, that is an extraordinary, miraculous level of grace, isn't it? In fact, the only way you could possibly do that is from someone who has a deep trust in Christ. And as it turns out, actually, they are Christian, and they have a very deep understanding of what God has done for them and what God has given them. This is what they had to say. It's very, very hard And always we wake up with a broken heart. Right now, I can't hate him. I don't want to see him, but I don't hate him. I think in my heart to forgive him. Jesus is the best babysitter for them to have. And when we look at the big picture every day, we're getting closer to seeing them again. That's the Holy Spirit. That's God. God turned the tragedy into a greater good. The concept of Christ's death and resurrection is so applicable to life. What we go through with trauma, we can resurrect from that. We can apply and learn from the cross, he says. See, church, life isn't fair. There is sadness and there is tragedy. And I felt so much for this family and what they went through. And I feel for you too. 
You know, I don't know all of what you're personally going through right now. Your anxiety, your depression, your traumatic past, your failures, the struggles in your relationships or with your work or with your study. And the message of Job isn't going to answer all the questions why or necessarily give you all the tools to to work through that. But what he is going to do is to show us that, in fact, God is still in control. In fact, God actually encourages us to give up on this idea of fairness, particularly as this kind of self-serving distortion or this, this thinking, because in a fair world, rebellious sinners are owed nothing. No, no, faith is knowing that God is in control so that you don't have to be. Faith is accepting the good and the bad as that which comes from God's own hand and the purpose of which we might not be able to see right then and there in the time. Life's just going to hurt sometimes, but that God may be working something in and through that for a greater good. To finish off, I wanted us to reflect on a a little quote from a a Baptist preacher called Charles Spurgeon, because I think he kind of draws a lot of those threads together. He said this, I uh, I believe the hardest unloving Christians are those who have never had much trouble. Those who are most sympathizing are those who had the most afflictions. The worst thing that can happen to us is to have a path too smooth. You see, there is something about the rough undulations of life, the struggles, the sufferings. But actually, sometimes, and maybe it's even for our good, that we would actually go through that. But that, like Job, like Jesus, we would know we might be shaken, but we're never forsaken. And like Job, like Jesus, we can choose to entrust ourselves to a just and holy God. So let's do that now in prayer. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we are shocked by the events of Job's life as we are shocked daily about the events that we see happening on the news and in the lives of those around us. Lord, we struggle with our own struggles, challenges and sufferings that are going on in our lives, maybe even right now. But Father, today might we learn from Job's example, might we learn from Jesus' example, might we even be able to say, Lord, we praise you, blessed be your name, Lord, even in the dark moments of our life. But Father, we do pray that you would bring us comfort, the comfort of knowing the Lord Jesus, the comfort of knowing that he's got everything under his control. And Lord, will you help us, will you grow us through our struggles, through our sufferings, that we might learn what it means to have trust and faith and gratitude in every moment of our lives, the good and the bad. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.